we are progressing through. We're almost there. Um, next week, I believe, we will, um, we will finish um, Isaiah 27. And with it, we'll finish the little apocalypse of Isaiah that we've been working through steadily from uh, beginning of chapter 24. And what a section it's been. It's been magnificent. And we've seen so much um, about end times and the day of the Lord and what's going to happen. And more relevant to this whole section has been not just the day of the Lord in the sense of judgment, which Isaiah has spoken about routinely in his book, but also the end of the day of the Lord, the return of the king to establish his kingdom, uh, the restoration of the Jewish people, and uh, all that comes along with that. And so last time we saw uh, the beginning of chapter 27, in that day, Yahweh with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. And we saw the end of Satan being spoken of, and we related that to other passages of, uh, of Scripture. Um, so uh, that was last time. Now in verse 2 now, we have another in that day. And so again, it's, they're, just, they're just stacking up one upon the other. All of these things are going to happen at the end. There's one more to come at the end of this chapter in verse 12, and we'll be there, God willing, next time. But uh, we're going to look at verses 2 through 6 tonight. Um, so I'm just going to read that section for you, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get stuck in. Okay? In that day... A pleasant vineyard, a sing of it. I, Yahweh, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we study your word tonight, that you would illuminate your word for us tonight, that you would speak through your word, that you would enlighten us, Lord, and transform us evermore into your glory. Amen. Amen. All right. So, we have here another song of a vineyard. Now, I'm not sure how many of you were here in chapter 5, or how many of uh, you have been listening and catching up as far as chapter 5, but in chapter 5 we saw famously the song of the vineyard. And this in a sense, is a continuation of that theme, though it's not the end by any stretch. And Isaiah has been running with this theme, and so I think it's helpful for us to take a step back and to, to look at the history here. And it doesn't actually begin with Isaiah. It begins in Psalm 80. I mean, we can go back before that even, but I think what we really need to look at begins in Psalm 80. So let's just turn to Psalm 80 briefly. Um, this is a psalm of Asaph. 
It is, uh, it is a, a psalm that speaks of God being angry with his people and um, the need for, for them to be restored. And it is a section of the Psalms, as some of you know, I, I, I'm aware that uh, it are called the Elohim Psalms because God is predominantly referred to as Elohim rather than Yahweh, his covenant name. And this psalm, like so many in this section, speaks of a God who is distant. However, there are a couple of times in Psalm 80 where the recollection of the covenant relationship requires them to call Elohim Yahweh, Ella, Elohim, or Yahweh Adonai, actually. Um, but they refer to him by his covenant name. So, um, I think it is Yahweh Elohim. But anyway... Um, let's have a look at Psalm 80. You should all be there now. Okay? So, um, there is a refrain um, in this uh, psalm. A refrain, like a chorus, if you like. You'll find it in verse 3, in verse 7, and in verse 19. So, in verse 1, give ear, uh, shepherd of Israel, um, you who lead Joseph like a flock who are enthroned upon the cherubim shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin and Manasseh stir up your might and come and save us God, you are a God who leads Israel you have a relationship with us and yet you are the mighty God of hosts the one who is over the, even the cherubim and as such you are the one who is able to come and save us so please come and do that and then comes the chorus for the first time and you'll see the variations in it I'm going to get distracted by this psalm but it is a goodie it really is a goodie um, restore us O God God here Elohim let your face shine that we may be saved the idea here is is if God would shine his glory upon them if his face would shine upon them that they would be saved and we see in the Psalms, and particularly in this section of the, of, of, of the Psalms, um, uh, as we uh, sort of come to the end of the Elohim Psalms, and we're coming into more of the, the, the Psalms of Korah that began the Elohim Psalms, we, we see this constant picture of when God's favor is not upon you, he's hiding his face. Show your face, O Lord. Where are you? Why do you hide your face from us? And so this God who is but just Elohim, he's the distant God in the heavens rather than Yahweh, the, the close covenantal relationship God. That this, this God is, has hidden his face, his face from them. It's almost as if when God is with them, the covenant is being worked out and he is Yahweh, their covenant God. But when he hides his faith, face from them, He's just Elohim. He's a, he's a distant God. And so if his face shines upon them, then they will be saved from their predicament. And so it is on the basis of a covenant relationship that they cry out for him. O Yahweh, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? In other words, we're crying out to you, but you're not responding to our prayers. You must be angry with the prayers and angry with your people you have fed them that's the prayers with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure in other words the 
the prayers have been, have been um, nourished by the tears of the people. You make us an object of contention for our neighbours and our enemies laugh amongst themselves. And again, we for the second time, we have the chorus. Notice the distinction. The first time, restore us, O God. This time, restore us, O God of hosts. Him being the God of hosts was mentioned in verse 4, because the cherubim were mentioned in verse 1. In other words, first time out, it's, O distant God, please save us. Restore that covenant relationship. Restore the relationship with us. Come be close to us. And this time, it is appealed to God of hosts. Oh God, you are the mighty God. You are powerful. You can do this. And that's why we're crying out to you. Now look at verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. This is why we're here. I just like the context. But anyway, this is why we're here. Because Israel here is equated to a vine. When Israel came out of Egypt, when they were rescued from slavery, when the Red Sea was parted and they came out, then when they came out of Egypt and through the wilderness into the promised land, ultimately, you drove out the nations and planted it. And so God took Israel and planted her in that fertile soil of the promised land. That's what he would promised he would do and that's what he then did. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. That would be the Euphrates River. So what's going on here is this. That God had cleared the land ready for the planting of the vineyard. The nations and their false gods that had been there were wiped out. And the Israel went into the land and there they were established and they eventually became stronger and more mighty and they spread out throughout the land and they were fruitful. And then, verse 12, why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. In other words, you have taken away the protection that vineyards have. If anyone has a vineyard, anyone, then because of the danger of that fruit being fed upon by other creatures or the critters of the land, the danger of neighbors coming in and stealing the fruit, there is a need so often for the vineyards to be protected. And so, that's what the average person would do. So if that's what a normal person would do, why would God not do that with his vineyard? Why has the wall of protection come down and why are their enemies able to mock them and, and steal from them and plunder them? And so Jeremiah, uh, sorry, Jeremiah, Asaph, thinking ahead here, um, Asaph is asking a question. The question is, if we're your vineyard, why do you not care for us like other vineyard owners care for their vineyards? That's the question of Psalm 80. But because I love it, we're going to finish it off, because there's only a few verses left. Turn again, O God of hosts. Again, Elohim of hosts. He is the mighty one, and so they ask him to turn. Look down from heaven and see, and have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. And again, this themology of the vine, the vineyard, is one that is being continued. 
They have burned it with fire, they've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. And so they, presumably the enemies of Israel, are burning it down, cutting it down, destroying the vineyard. And God, maybe may you burn them rather than they burn us. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Oh, is this not rich? Oh, man, I, I, at this point, I want to just completely forget eyes. You know, no, I must, I must be strong. But you see the Son of Man reference. I can't hide it from you. And the request in verse 17 is simply this, that God is the one with a mighty hand, and so may the one at his right hand, his people, his son, be one whom he protects. And there is, of course, messianic implications in the expression son of man, though um, whether that's something picked up on later or what's actually intended by Asaph, um, I, I wouldn't would want to say at this point. Nonetheless, notice the repetition of turning. God should turn and look down from heaven and see. And here... Verse 18, then we shall not turn back from you. The implication is, if you turn to us, then we won't turn away again from you. We need you to turn to us, so that we will never turn away again from you. In other words, we're always going to turn unless you turn to us. And isn't there truth in that? And isn't that prayer, as we've seen in our eschatology in Isaiah, hasn't that not ultimately been answered, or will ultimately be answered? Um, Give us life, and we will call upon your name. And notice there the reference to name. Name, remember, is the character of God. It's his covenant attributes. And so... Save us, give us life, and then we'll call out to you. And so there is this calling out, restore us, Yahweh, God of hosts. And their covenant name gets added to the chorus on the final time. We want to call upon your name. We want to have that covenant relationship with you. You are our covenant God, so let your face shine that we might be saved. Isn't that a great psalm? What a wonderful psalm. So, with that psalm, there is a pressing question that Asaph has, and the question that he has is this, if we are your vine, and if other people protect their vineyards, why do you not protect us? Let's return to the book of Isaiah, but let's begin in chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 3. God is judging his people in Isaiah 3, and there is particular focus on the leadership. And uh, in verse 12, my people, infants are their oppressors and women rule over them, is speaking of the utter failure of the leadership of Israel and how people who shouldn't be leading them are leading them because of what they have done. Oh, my people, your guides have misled you, and they have swallowed up the course of your paths. Israel's path 
has, and the, the negativity of that path has come about because of their leaders. Thus, verse 13, Yahweh has taken his place to contend. He stands to judge peoples. Yahweh will enter into his judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. So the leadership are going to be judged. And this is the judgment. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor? So the first answer to Asaph's question is, what, Asaph's like, what's happened to the vineyard? Why are our enemies able to attack us? Why there's no protection? And God's first answer is that the vineyard has been destroyed from within. That the leadership of Israel is what has brought about the harming of the people of Israel. But that's only part of the puzzle. And really the main answer comes in chapter 5. And chapter 5 is the famous one. It's the song of the vineyard. It begins chapter 5. And it's crucial for us to understand some difficult scriptures in chapter 6 and going on even through to the New Testament. Some of you, because you were here, will be familiar with this, but let's read it again. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. Isaiah is going to do a song here. Isaiah is ready to break into song. And he's going to sing a song concerning um, his beloved. In this context, clearly God. He loves the Lord. And so there is a, a love song for God concerning his vineyard. If nothing else, that implies that God is very fond of his vineyard. But as we're going to see, God is a broken-hearted God. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. That's the fertile land referred to in Psalm 80. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. So all the things in the land that would have hindered it, the land was prepared. The nations were taken away, their gods were taken away, and thus the land was ready for cleaned out for fresh planting for God's vineyard. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. And so... And we see here the significance of that in the context of Psalm 80. God, why haven't you protected us? Well, I did. I, I built a watchtower in the middle of it. You were protected. But what happened? He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. To paraphrase, icky grapes, yucky grapes, sour grapes, nasty grapes, rotten grapes. The fruit was bad. There was nothing, there was nothing that God had done that would have led to the fruit being anything but good. Everything that a vine keeper should have done, the preparation of the land, the watchtower, the protection, everything was done, and yet the fruit was still bad. The problem came from Israel itself. Now this does not contradict chapter 3. It's clear that the leadership of Israel had led Israel into sin. The leadership of Israel had caused the sins of Israel to be multiplied. The leadership of Israel had led the people away from God, but the people had turned from God nonetheless. And thus the fruit of the nation was bad. So why is it that the enemies are coming in? We see in verse 3 and following. Oh, now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? God did everything he could. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge 
and it will be devoured. I will break down its wall, it shall be trampled on. I will make it a waste, it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. All of the protection, all of the care, all of the pruning, all of the managing, the looking after of the crop, all of that is being taken away. And as the song says, wouldn't you do the same? Judge, judge between me and my vineyard. Would you not do the same? And at this point in the psalm, we obviously know who the vine is, right? But at this point in the song, it's as if it hasn't been revealed. Here is a song about a loved one. We know it's God, but it could be any loved one. It could be his wife who has a vineyard. It could be his close friend. There is a vineyard. And the vineyard owner did everything. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the men of Judah, verse 3, are brought into the equation, not because they're the vine at this point, but they're brought into the equation to pass judgment. If you had a vineyard, folks, hey, Judah, Israel, come here. If you had a vineyard and you did everything you could, got the best soil, the best location, all the protection, did everything you could, and you spent hours and hours of care, tons of money on care, you did everything you could in your power to make good fruit, and it produced bad fruit, would you continue to invest time in it? Would you go and prune it so that it produces more bad fruit? Would you go to trouble to stop the enemies coming in and stealing the bad fruit? Would you pull up the thorns and briars that would prevent you from getting to the fruit? Would you? And of course the response, in ignorance of the situation of what he's speaking of, would be, well no, of course not. And this then, in that sense, is very reminiscent of Nathan and David. Nathan, the prophet, remember, came to David after his sinning with Bathsheba and killing of Uriah. And he says, I'm going to tell you about a guy who had lots and lots of sheep. And there's another guy, he only has one. And he tells him this story and he asks him to pass judgment. And David says, kill that man! How dare he! And then Nathan says, uh, David, that's you. Boom. Verse 7 is the boom. For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. When he planted, it was his joy. It was pleasing to him. And Israel and Judah are the vineyard, but they've produced nothing but bad fruit. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And so when we come to chapter 6, and God says to Isaiah with regards to his ministry, go and preach to the people, but keep, and say to them, keep on hearing, but do not understand, keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and be healed. Hey, Isaiah, I need someone to go. Oh, I'll go. Fantastic. Great. Here's your job. I want you to go and preach to the people in such a way that they don't understand, that they don't hear, 
and they don't believe and they don't turn because if they do then I'll have to heal them and I don't want to do that and that sounds terrible and Jesus quotes this following the rejection of his messiahship by the same leaders of Israel in his generation because there's a time when Israel is decreed blindness and if you think that's unfair come judge with me what would you do if you had a vineyard and it produced bad fruit and so that is the song of the vineyard now though Isaiah takes us to that point and though there is no further song of the vineyard until this time there are echoes of that song as we continue through Isaiah turn to chapter 7 verse 23 in that day every place where there used to be thousand a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns there will be a judgment in Isaiah 7 of Assyria and their vineyard will in that day receive fire, uh, briars and thorns in place of um, in place of the, uh, the the vines the rich vines that they had and there is a deliberate allusion there in the in the day when God makes all things right the ones who have been thorns and briars to Israel will lose their own vineyard and they will have their own thorns and briars this is the final judgment of Assyria echoes chapter 9 and verse 18 let's go from verse 17 therefore the, uh, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men has no compassion on their fatherless and widows everyone is godless and an evildoer and every mouth speaks folly for all this his anger has not turned away his hand is stretched out still still the judgment of God upon them verse 18 for wickedness burns like a fire it consumes briars and thorns God's fire burns up thorns and briars and there with thorns and briars we have an echo back to the thorns and briars of the song of the vineyard God is able to burn up the those who oppress Israel Israel are receiving punishment from God but God can burn them up verse uh, chapter 10 and verse 17 Uh, let's go to verse 16 therefore Yahweh God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors and under his glory a burning will be kindled this is again a repetition of judgment upon Assyria the light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day the thorns and briars seem to be in the repetition of the usage following the song of the vineyard it seems to be those things that are a hindrance to the vine it's the enemies surrounding Israel and a couple of times as we've just read God will be able to burn them up and destroy them another enemy is seen to have its own thorns and briars its own destruction and here all of Israel's thorns and briars will be burnt up in a single day in that day in that glorious day all of Israel's enemies will go boom 
In the same way that you might have a massive field of thorns and briars dried from the sun and it takes a single match and the whole lot just goes. So it is. The enemies of Israel will go in that day. And all of that then keeps us in the loop as it were and it brings us through to where we are in chapter 27. In that day, a pleasant vineyard. Repetition of pleasant, do you remember that from chapter 5? It was his pleasant planting. And now the vineyard itself is pleasant. There was joy in God's heart on the day of planting, when God rescued his people from Egypt and brought them across the Red Sea and then took them from the wilderness across the Jordan into the promised land. It was a pleasant parting, but the fruit was not pleasant. But in that day, in that time of restoration, in that day of the Lord when all things come to an end, what will happen is that the vineyard will be pleasant again. Isaiah was told to sing of the vineyard. It was a trick, as you recall. He was singing a song of the vineyard. Oh, my beloved, as a vineyard, hear my song. And now you've heard my song. What do you think? What would you do with such a vineyard? Now, the singing is being done by us, by them, by Israel perhaps, by, perhaps by the reader, the hearer of this word, certainly by Israel in that day. There shall be much singing and rejoicing because the vineyard will be pleasant. I, Yahweh, am its keeper. We know that. We know that God is the, the owner of the vineyard. We remember the song of the vineyard, but there is more to that here. He is now keeping the vineyard. The vineyard, remember, was left. Walls were down, thorns and briars came up. There was no help for it. There was no pruning of it. There was no keeping of it at all, to such a degree that the sovereign God didn't even allow rain to fall upon it. Why is the vineyard pleasant again? Because God is once again its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it, I keep it night and day. Isn't that beautiful? Night and day, we've seen that lots of times in the Psalms, that kind of picture of completeness. It's just a poetic shorthand for all the time. God is always watching over it. And notice the two things that the keeper of the vineyard does. Number one, he waters it. The one who caused the rain to dry up, boy, did the rain dry up, right? The times of prosperity and the times of, of enjoyment of the land of Solomon never came back again from that point to this. And then after their rejection of their Messiah in 70 AD, they were kicked out of the land completely and weren't even able to return for the best part of 2,000 years. Boy, was there no water for them. What other nation has lost its homeland and still existed even a few centuries later, let alone 2,000 years later? None is the answer. No water. Yet God kept his remnant, and now the vineyard is restored. 
Israel has been redeemed, as we've been seeing in these chapters. And God is watering the vineyard again. Now the question of Psalm 80 was, why are our enemies attacking us? What's the reason for this? Now, chapter 5 completely answered that, did it not? It was like, well, this is why I took away your protection and you'd have done the same. That was the answer to Psalm 80. But the issue of Psalm 80 was one of a lack of protection. And so here, the other thing the keeper does, he says, it, he says I'm its keeper, lest anyone punish it, I keep it night and day. Now this is kind of cool. The word here for punish, we've come across before. It's become a key thematic word in the book of Isaiah. For those who haven't been here for some of this, I'll just give you a little quick heads up on this. But Isaiah has in recent chapters been using a word for punish that is not the most common Hebrew word for punish. What it means is, more, more literally, is to determine the fate of someone. If God says, come to me, my child, then your fate has been determined, but it's not a punishment. More commonly, it's used in determining the fate of someone for whom the fate is not good, in which case punish is a fairly good translation. But nonetheless, the word, more broadly speaking, means to determine the fate. We referenced that this morning when we were looking at an allusion to Isaiah 24 in Second Peter. But he determines their fate. He first uses this um, verb in chapter 10 when he's talking about punishing the king of Assyria. We've already referenced the king of Assyria and his judgment in chapter 10 when we looked just a moment ago at the thorns and briars there. But God is going to punish the king of Assyria with thorns and briars. In other words, the king of Assyria will have his fate determined by God. In chapter 13, it says, I will punish the world for its evil. God will determine the fate of the entire world because of the evil in it. And so Isaiah has used this word a few times to speak not so much of the punishment per se, but, of, but more of the fact that the sovereign Lord is the one who will determine the fate of all. And that should be something that should be of a concern to those who rebel against him and those who commit evil. Then... And now you can turn with me to the end of chapter 23. The whole section on all of the oracles of all of the nations comes to its conclusion. If you recall, when it comes to its conclusion, the nation of Tyre, because it's renowned for its arrogance, is connected to, uh, symbolically to God judging the nations. And we're told at the end of 70 years, Yahweh will visit Tyre and she will return to her wages and he will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. And so we have um, God um, visiting Tyre. The word visit there is our same word. God is going to go to Tyre to determine her fate. So after 70 years, God's going to return and return to her her wages. And 
when he visits her, you can hardly use the word punish because he's going to return her wages. It seems to contextually be the right word. But nonetheless, he's determining the fate of Tyre. And so the oracles of the kingdoms that has stretched, by the way, from chapter 13 right the way through to chapter 23, it ends with God doing what he did throughout that section, which is determining the fate of the nations. Then when we came to Isaiah's apocalypse, this word determining the fate became very central. Remember in chapter 24, verse 21, we referenced it this morning. On that day, Yahweh will punish, literally determine the fate of the hosts of heaven in heaven, the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison. And after many days, they will be punished again. Literally, their fate will be determined. Right? God is sovereign. He determines the fate of the nations of Tyre. He will determine her fate and all others. And here he is at the end of days saying, angelic realm, this is your fate. Human realm, this is your fate. And he will judge them and he will put them in a pit awaiting a time, many days. Revelation 20 tells us it's a thousand years. And after that time, Satan will be loosed a little while and then his fate will be determined again and this time for all eternity. The fate will be determined. But that is not the last time that he talks about determining fate because as you may have noticed in the apocalypse of Isaiah, he does a lot of determining fates in that day. There's a lot of judgment, a lot of closing of chapters of books, so to speak. And so, look at chapter 26, verse 14. Chapter 26 and verse 14. You'll remember this, they are dead, they will not live, they are Rephaim, shades, Rephaim. They will not arise, the Rephaim do not arise. To that end, you have visited them with destruction. You've determined the fate of the Rephaim. They're the ones in the pit, referenced in chapter 24, same verb, same concept, same thing. Yes? Then a couple of verses later, in verse 16. O Lord, in distress they sought you. Literally, they came to you. They came to you wanting you to determine their fate. It's a different form of the same verb. In the same way that God visits people to determine their fate, they sought out God for him to visit them. That is the, what the word is being used for here in this section. In a Lord in distress, Israel said, please come and determine our fate. Isn't that powerful? He doesn't just say come to us and restore us. Come to us and do good to us. It's just like, Lord, we are in such a predicament right now that we need you to come and just do your will. You ever had those kind of prayer times? Where you pray for something, Lord, please do this. Lord, please do this. Lord, please do this. And the Lord doesn't do it. And finally, the situation is so bad, you say, Lord, you know I want you to do this, but just do something. Just do your will. Just come and invade this situation and change it in whatever way you will. You know? It's, it's like, Lord, we, 
we, we, we need this specific thing, that this specific thing, oh, just anything, Lord, just, just help. It's kind of that feel to it, hasn't it? The repetition of God determining their fate. And then again in the same chapter in verse 21, for behold, Yahweh is coming out from his place to punish, determine the fate, the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And, and, uh, and, I, I, and I will be completely frank, I, because of the, the way it's translated differently in the English here, I missed um, until today the inclusio of that section. The, the bookends, as it were, in that that section begins with Israel crying out and, and saying, hey, come and determine our fate. And God does come and determine their fate. And then as he comes, the fate of the enemies that Israel were crying out for help from, their fate is the one that is determined. But God is the sovereign one who determines all of these fates. Yes? Then, when we came to chapter 27, last time, we have Leviathan. Leviathan. In that day, the Lord, with his great and uh, strong sword, will punish Leviathan. He will have his fate determined. I don't even remember. Isn't that terrible? It was only last week. I don't even remember if I drew the connection last week. But... I know I connected the two passages, I'm not sure how, if I connected using this precise word, but we linked back to the fact that Satan is having his fate determined in chapter 24 and verse 21. He will have his fate determined and be gathered in the pit, and then after many days, Revelation 20, a thousand years, he's loosed, and then he has his fate determined again. And here, that second determining of his fate is what 27 verse 1 is talking about. It is that second determining of fate that is being referenced in that day, God will determine the fate of Leviathan. He will punish Leviathan. Same verb. Right? Whew. It's quite a theme. It is a constant theme that God who determines fate of nations here in the last days is making all things right, concluding all these chapters, determining the fates of God's people and the enemies of God's people and what have you. Right, so all of that in context. And now this word is used one more time here in chapter 27 and verse 3. And I say one more time, I mean one more time. I think it may be another time in Isaiah, but it's the last time in the apocalypse of Isaiah. 27 verse 3. I, Yahweh, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone determine its fate. You don't decide what happens to Israel. I'm her keeper. I decide what happens to Israel. Isn't that a lovely conclusion of a theme that has been running just by the use and the repetition of one particular word? I love this stuff. It's so much fun. So God is, and it's just such a, I, I love this psalm, uh, this song. It's just such a triumphant song. All of these themes, you know, that we have. The vineyard is pleasant, like the pleasant planting. He waters it, having withheld the cloud. And nobody else will determine its fate, because God is a determiner of fates. And he is once again keeping his pleasant vineyard. I just love it. It's just great how it all wraps up and comes together. Verse 4 says this. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. 
Now this is, in a sense, a repetition of a theme that we saw just a few weeks ago. Do you remember back at the beginning of chapter 26? He said, it said, when it talks about the establishing of Jerusalem at the beginning of the kingdom in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and, walls and bulwarks. In other words, salvation is, there's no walls because salvation are the walls. Because they have trusted in God and because God is the protector here in this chapter, keeper of his people, there's nothing to protect them from because there are no enemies. This is what God is saying here. He says, I have no wrath, there's no anger, there's no judgment for me to pass out. I have passed out my judgment, I have judged the nations, the Gentiles, destroyed the enemies. There are no more thorns and briars for the vineyard. In the same way that there's no walls needed for protection. There are no enemies, there are no thorns and briars. And so, in verse 4, he says, I have no wrath, would that I had thorns and briars to battle. You are my people, we have been restored. Oh, oh that someone would come and fight you, Israel. Come on, someone pick a fight with Israel, because I'm already. It's kind of the picture being painted here, right? And then there's a twist. And as always, when there are repetition of themes, there's always something new. He always says it in a different way. And here it's all the play on the song of the vineyard. But there was something new. Look at verse 5. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. And just in case you didn't get that. And you went, what did he just say? Let me say it again. Let them make peace with me. Things are going to be so different in that day. That were people to come up against Israel. God won't say, let me wipe you out. He'll say, why don't you come and be my people too? Come make peace with me. How on earth is that going to happen? We see in verse 6. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Do you remember that the planting of the vineyard, Psalm 80, was about it being, the, being planted down? in the land, in that soil, of the time that they came into the land. It says, in days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel will take root. Now listen, I want you to hear this clearly. When Isaiah wrote this, how can Jacob take root in the land? How's it possible? If you've got a garden and a tree's in the garden and you point to where the tree is and said, in days to come, I'm going to plant a tree there. Sorry, do you want to borrow my glasses? There's already a tree there. In days to come, I'm going to plant my vineyard there. I'm going to plant my, my, my nation, Israel. Put roots down. But Israel's already there. Israel was removed from the land by the Babylonians. And later on, Israel came back under Nehemiah, the city walls were rebuilt. Under Ezra, the temple was rebuilt. And once again, Israel was replanted. Roots were put down. I wonder, 
I wonder if they thought that was forever. Surely they did. I wonder if they thought that Isaiah, who had written prior to their removal from the land, that when he says in this verse, in days to come, Jacob shall take root, they say, ah, now we understand that, we're taking root again. But then in 70 AD, they were ripped up again. No, Isaiah 27, verse 6, in the, the first part, the first phrase, and, and be very clear here, only the first phrase was fulfilled in 1948. Now it's clear that the next phrase wasn't fulfilled in 1948, has not been fulfilled today, and we're still waiting upon it. But this is typical of Isaiah's prophecies and prophecies in the Old Testament generally. That Isaiah talks about things that will happen and goes, first coming, second coming, boom, boom, things in sequence, things, you know, many days later, that's a thousand years, that's quite a lot of days for us, you know? There, there are things that pan out over greater periods of time. But before Israel can blossom, roots must go down. Israel has been planted back into the land, and though they will be persecuted, and though they will be hunted, and though they will be destroyed, they are now back in the land. And the time will come when those roots will go down deep over the years and eventually there will be blossom and shoots will come forth. Israel will produce life. And from those shoots will come fruit and the fruit will fill the whole earth. Verse 6 is the answer to the problem of verse 5, which is how is it that the enemies of Israel will not have wrath but the offer of peace? The answer is because Israel will give light to the world that there will be fruit that will come from Israel that will stretch to the entirety of the world. And so, there is this promise of future restoration. And I want to be absolutely clear on this. I've been speaking in the mornings about the importance of Scripture and the interpretation of Scripture and the authorial intent of Scripture and letting Scripture speak and not twisting Scripture. Is Jacob shall take root and Israel shall blossom. Listen, guys, it is absolutely, completely, abundantly clear that the root of Jacob is the Jewish root, that Jacob and Israel refers to the Jews. This is the song of the vineyard. The song of the vineyard here is indelibly linked to the song of the vineyard in chapter 5. Indelibly. Pleasant, pleasant, water, water. Everything is linked towards it. It is the same vine that produced bad fruit that will be restored and will give good fruit. Yes? Is there anybody, 
in any Christian commentator, any Bible commentary, any interpreter of scripture who would look at Isaiah chapter 5 and look at it where it says, you Israel are this vineyard and say anything other than Israel, physical Israel, the descendants of Abram, Isaac and Jacob are that vineyard. They're the ones that sinned, they're the ones that produced bad fruit and they're the ones that as a result were under judgment. Nobody, nobody is suggesting that that vineyard is anything, anything, anything other than Israel. Then how can it not be anything other than the most anti-Semitic theology? I am not implying anti-Semitic by intent, but certainly in outworking. That someone could conclude that the same vineyard with the same name when it comes to be restored is anything other than the descendants of Abram, Isaac and Jacob. God said he will do it. If I said I will do something for you, if I slapped you around the face and I said, as just as I slapped you around the face, one day I'm going to give you a kiss on the cheek. And then I end up giving somebody else a kiss on the cheek and completely ignoring you. You turn around and say, you didn't keep your word. Do we expect less of God than we would expect of a human being? Do we have lower standards for God keeping his word than we do for our own people? Shame on us. The scriptures unavoidably, indelibly speak of a restoration of Israel. The same vineyard that produced bad fruit will presumably at some point be uprooted. That happened. And will be replanted. That happened. And all the people who say, Isaiah 5 is Israel, but Isaiah 27 ain't. They have all sorts of problems with what happened in 1948. They say, oh, it's just an irrelevance, it's a coincidence. Oh, it doesn't really mean anything. Pah! It is the replanting of Israel. Had she blossomed yet? Do we see fruit? Do we see new life? Do we see them turning to him in huge numbers? No, they still remain in blindness for now. So what's going on? Those roots are going down because there's going to be a day of blossoming. Why? Because he promised there would be. And he's my God. And he's a covenant God. And he keeps his word. His name is Yahweh. He does what he says. And he will not have his purposes thwarted. How dare we twist his words and try and make scripture constantly refer to us. Yes, this is the church era. Yes, Israel is predominantly blinded. And yes, God is bringing in Gentiles predominantly at this point, though he has a small remnant still. And yes, that remnant combined with the huge numbers of Gentiles. And we are one body, the bride of Christ, united together in a way that wasn't even revealed in the Old Testament scriptures fully. But that does not mean that the things that God clearly said he would do in the Old Testament, that he will not do. 
as Paul tells us in Romans 11, at some point the fullness of Gentiles will come in and thus all Israel will be saved. He is not talking about Christians. He's not saying all Christians will be saved. That would be a bit of a duh statement. There's nothing revelational about that. If you're a Christian, you're saved. And so everyone who's saved is saved. I mean, you know, that's kind of a bit not what sort of thing Paul says. He's saying that God will keep the promises of the Old Testament scriptures, which is very much in the theology of what he's saying in Romans 9, 10, and 11. The problem in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is that it looks like he hasn't kept his promises. It looks like the promises won't come to pass. And Paul says, yes, he will. He's not done. It will happen. And then from the time of Paul, for almost 2,000 years, Jacob had no roots in the land. And then in 1948, he replanted. If you were wrong about the planting and the rooting, can you not wake up and see that he will do the blossoming and the fruiting? God will keep his word. Is that the end? Not quite. I am going to hold back because sometimes I like to go forward and tell, tell you where Isaiah takes us. Because, you know, chapter 55 might be a few years away and, you know, you'll forget and I'll be able to repeat. But it's only in chapter 32 that uh, Isaiah will complete the vineyard saga. I will refrain from much comment but I'm going to read it because it's my favourite part of all of the vineyard section. And you can tell how much I like this part. So that's saying a lot. So, Isaiah 32. Rise up, you women, verse 9, who are at ease, hear my voice. You complacent daughters, give ear to my speech. A little more than a year you will shudder, you complacent women. For the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bared and tight sackcloth around your waist. In other words, those of you who, ladies who are complacent that you're going to do your work in the fields and get your fruit, be careful because you have no guarantee of harvest. That's the context, right? And the implication is, you need to trust in God and not in yourselves because he's the one that produces good fruit, right? In that context, verse 12, beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. Can you see how we shifted from the women and their literal grape harvest that they are expecting to come that won't come and this time next year they're going to be starving and have to get rid of their clothes and tie sackcloth around them to back to the song of the vineyard theme and the reason why they're going to have no harvest next year in other words, what you should be beating your breasts about, what you should be seeking after, what should be your passion is not filling your belly, but 
God restoring Israel. Israel producing fruit and being faithful. And it's because of your unfaithfulness, it's because you haven't trusted in God that you will have a literal bare harvest. In other words, remember that God is the God of the vineyard. Don't neglect him or he might neglect your literal vineyard. That's the implication of the text. For the palace is forsaken, the popular city deserted, the hill and the watchtower become dens forever, the joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. And we, again, I'll leave that for, next, for when we get there. But listen to this phrase, isn't this wonderful? Until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. When is the vineyard going to be restored? When the Spirit is poured out on the nation of Israel from on high. Isn't that magnificent? I'm not sure I had that in the Holy Spirit series. We should put it in the next one. The wilderness becomes a fruitful field. The fruitful field is deemed a harvest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness. Righteousness abide in the fruitful field. The effect of righteousness will be peace. The result of peace, uh, of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings and quiet resting places and it will hail when the forest falls down. The city will utterly be laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, waters who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. When the Holy Spirit is poured out the vineyard will be restored and there will be peace and there will be righteousness there will be secure dwelling no enemies no thorns and briars no wall around the city there will be a time of peace what is going to precipitate it all the pouring out of the holy spirit the mass salvation of the people of israel the the fulfillment of the promise of the new covenant to the nation with whom that covenant was promised that's what is going to precipitate the fruitful vine. In other words, what was said all along by Asaph in Psalm 80 was true. You need to turn to us, God, so that we never turn from you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises, O oh God. May we never deny them, may we delight in them, may we rejoice in them. Father, may you, may you give us joy in seeing your name, your character, your steadfast love and faithfulness to those with whom you covenant, that we might trust in you. And how thankful we are that even though the day when you pour your spirit out on Israel has not yet come, that you still allow us to have the privilege of being partakers of those covenant blessings. Salvation is ours in Christ, wrought by his blood, that we might provoke your nation to jealousy. Lord, may you bring in the fullness of Gentiles. May you turn your attention again to your nation Israel. May you restore them, though you must burn them first. And may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.